Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads this way. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not, you do not know what you were asking are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or, be, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the bapti- baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left hand, is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Danny Aiken, in his commentary on the book of Mark, says this, We are sent to serve, even laying down our lives if God ordains it, just as he ordained it for his Son. So here we are now in the 53rd part of this series titled Following Jesus, and we have now taken nearly 16 months to get here. And the reason why we have invested so much time in this particular book and on this particular subject is because we have been seeking to answer the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to follow where he leads. Jesus said very clearly to follow me, to go where he goes, to do what he does and do as he commands. And those who believe in him, those who trust in him, those who repent and believe the gospel, those who are saved, they are expected by Christ to follow him. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be a Christ follower. So what does it mean then to follow Jesus? What does that look like? And so 
We have been walking through the Gospel of Mark now for over a year because it is a fast-moving narrative that is focused on how Jesus lives, what Jesus actually does, and how he treats other people. And because of that, it's an excellent book for us to study as we learn to become more like him in our actions and in our attitudes as we learn to follow him as he has intended for us to do. And so... We've covered a lot of ground to this point. We've talked about a lot of things to this point, and there is still a great deal more to cover. But this morning, I want to begin with the understanding that the text that we are going to look at today, the verses we're going to look at today, is the high point of this gospel for us. I want to say that again. The text in Mark that we're going to look at today, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45, is the high point of this entire gospel for us. Because in this text... It is the answer to the question that we have been looking for. It is the answer to the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? This text is the climax for us as it relates to discipleship as we've been studying. But actually, it's more than that. Because in this text, we're going to see the key point of the entire gospel, why it is that Jesus came in the first place. And that is to give his life as a ransom For many. Or as the Apostle Paul says in Timothy, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. This is the purpose of Jesus' mission. And understanding, our understanding of what it means to follow Jesus is inextricably connected with that mission. Why Jesus came and what it means to follow Jesus are intimately and permanently connected together. And we, and we see this connection in the text today. That's why I say it's the high point of this entire book for us. Now, please understand, there's going to be a lot more for us to learn about discipleship throughout the rest of the, of, of the Gospel of Mark. But from this point forward, what we're going to see is Jesus is going to live out for us what he is clearly, what he's been teaching since chapter 8 of this Gospel about his mission and about our part in that mission. And so with that, it's important for us to see that not only is this the high point of the gospel for us, it is the climax of several themes that have been coming together. And again, this is why it's important, as we talked about over and over again, for us to read and understand this passage of Scripture like all other passages of Scripture in their context. Because there's a lot you know, of things that are coming together to emphasize the point that Jesus is making. There are a lot of threads now that will come together to really be the exclamation point on what Jesus is trying to say. And so what we need to understand is this event is the end of a teaching section that began about discipleship um, that began all the way in Mark chapter 8, verse 31. We have been in the same teaching section, I don't know if you realize it, since Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This section begins in Mark 8, 31, and it will end with Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And because of that, then, this event that we're going to look at today must be understood and connected to this entire section. Our understanding of our text today must come from our understanding of this entire section in Mark 8 through 10. Secondly, because it is connected, there is a clear pattern that we're going to see emerge in these three chapters. This is a pattern that has repeated itself Right, twice, and will repeat itself again. So three times we're going to see this pattern. And it's not an accidental detail of the text, by the way. This is done on purpose. There's a deliberate pattern that repeats three times in this section of Mark. And each time, 
Each time it begins with Jesus declaring the truth about his coming death and resurrection. He tells his disciples that he is going to die right, by the hands of his enemies, and three days later he will rise again. His disciples then respond to Jesus in ignorance and pride. Either they just reject what Jesus says outright, or they ignore what he says, and they end up... Uh, being concerned about their position in the new kingdom. They, they want to know who's going to be the greatest. And then Jesus, after that, teaches them about humility, sacrifice, and servant leadership in the new kingdom. He, he, he begins to explain to them the upside-down nature of the kingdom of God and, and, and how, how the kingdom of God is not like this world. In fact, let me just show you what I'm talking about here so you, you have a frame of reference. In Mark chapter 8, just after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, it says that Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Very clearly he's talking about his death and resurrection. But then Peter, not understanding the mission of Christ on earth and his part in that mission, rebukes Jesus and says basically that's not going to happen to you. Right? Peter responds in pride and ignorance because he can't even imagine that Jesus, the Messiah, was ever going to die. He has a different idea than what Jesus does, and Jesus rebukes him, and he tells them plainly that following Jesus isn't about what they think it is. In fact, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is not at all what they were expecting. This is the upside-down nature of 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 the kingdom of God, that following Jesus involves sacrifice and even suffering and maybe even, even death. Jesus teaches them that this is what it means to be a leader in, in the kingdom. And then this pattern repeats itself in Mark chapter 9. Jesus again talks about his death and resurrection. It says, beginning in verse 30 of chapter 9, they went, out, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Again, very clearly predicting his death and resurrection. And the disciples then respond again in ignorance and pride. Not only do they just not understand what Jesus is saying, they begin to argue amongst themselves who is going to be the greatest person in the kingdom of God besides Jesus. And Jesus again responds to them, again by teaching them about what it means to be great in the kingdom. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. In other words, greatness in the kingdom is not about your prestige, it's not going to be about power, and it's certainly not going to be about your position. It's about humble service. And then he goes and he illustrates this point by bringing a child to him, all right, and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but he who sent me. And Jesus, you know, leveraging the fact that children were not valuable in their culture, says basically that greatness in the kingdom of God is about serving even the least important people in society. It's about loving and valuing you know, everyone, everyone, including those who seem to be unlovable and unworthy. And again, completing the pattern that we see, a pattern that we're actually going to see repeated again one more time. Jesus will predict his death, they will respond in ignorance, and then Jesus will then again teach them about the kingdom. Now, we need to keep in mind what is the underlying issue, right? right? And, the, and, and, and what's the underlying, what, what underlies this pattern in, in this teaching section? 
And what it is is, is the disciples' misunderstanding of Jesus' mission on earth. The whole issue here is the disciples misunderstand why Jesus came. They fundamentally misunderstand why he came and what it means for them in light of that for them to follow him. They believe that Jesus certainly is the Messiah, which is the truth, but they believe that the Messiah, right, Jesus, has come to overthrow the Roman government. They believe that Jesus is going to ascend to King David's literal earthly throne, that he was going to restore Israel to a, a world superpower again, and that he would rule on earth from David's throne in Israel forever. They believe that's why Jesus came. They believe that it was about political revolution and, and national sovereignty of their, of their, their country. And they believed that their part in the mission would then be to follow Christ on this conquest, that they would march to victory alongside Jesus, and that they would then ascend to power with him as his closest advisors. This is the picture that they're holding on to. That is why Jesus, Peter rebuked Jesus for talking about his death, because he couldn't even fathom the idea that he was going to die. Right? That's why the disciples also argued about greatness in the kingdom, because they believed that there were going to be there was going to be a status there, that there was going to be that they were all going to be important, but they wanted to know who's going to be the most important. They simply have a flawed understanding of why Jesus came and what that means to them. They were in, in essence blind to the truth. They were right, and we're going to see how this is going to continue in the next text. And the thing that underlies this misunderstanding. The thing that underlies Christ's, you know, what, what their misunderstanding of Jesus' mission is spiritual blindness, which, by the way, is the reason why this entire section, these three chapters, is bookended by stories of Jesus giving sight to someone who was blind. Before this section began, there's a story of a blind man receiving sight, and then the very next story after this text is, is, is another man receiving sight. And again, this is not accidental. This is done purposefully. These are real-life miracles, but they serve as metaphors for what is happening in the lives of these apostles. Essentially, the first one where Jesus heals a man, this blind man, progressively, he doesn't actually just give him sight all at once. He touches the man, and the, the man re recovers part of his sight, but he can't see clearly. Then Jesus touches him a second time on purpose, and then the man sees clearly. This is a metaphor for what the disciples are going through. Right? They have their eyes open to the truth, but, it's a, but, it, but they still have partial hardness of heart. They still have partial blindness. They cannot see clearly. But at some point, we know that they will, but they just can't yet. And, and all of these contextual details then right, come together to help us you know, to see that, that what Jesus is teaching here is a clear demonstration of why he has come and what it means for those who believe in him to follow him. This section brings together you know, the answer of our question. Right? It brings it right to the forefront. And so, so with all of that, let's take a look at the text beginning in, in chapter 10, verse 32. And what we see is, it says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And as we have talked before, we're at a point in the story where they are now rushing towards the climax of this story, to the ultimate point. Jesus has already completed his Galilean ministry. He has already preached the gospel. He has already performed many miracles in both Jewish and Gentile territories. 
His popularity is at an all-time high. He and his disciples now are in Judea, making their way towards Jerusalem for the last time, because, because soon Jesus will be crucified and resurrected. And, and we see Jesus himself is leading the pack. Right? Jesus is intense, intensely moving forward to accomplish his mission. He's, he is set now on accomplishing this. That's why he is out in front. And we see... That, uh, that, that says that they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. Now, why would they be amazed and afraid? It seems like this is the, the logical conclusion of, of what, what's happening, that they go to Jerusalem. This is a detail that should actually cause you to stop and ask a question. Why were they amazed and afraid? Well, <clears throat> it's because they know something big is about to happen. Jesus is well-known all over now. He's at the very height of his popularity. It is now also the Passover season. What does that mean? It's the highest Jewish holiday, and that means millions and millions of Jews are now making their way toward Jerusalem, which means the Roman occupiers will be vastly outnumbered by Jewish nationals and Jewish people who hate them. And the anticipation now of Jesus finally revealing himself as the Messiah and then leading a revolt against the Roman Empire is beginning to stir up excitement amongst those who follow him. There's this anticipation now that we're finally now standing at the precipice of change. And many who follow Jesus believe that there is about to be this political rebellion against the Roman Empire. Right? Remember, that's what his followers are thinking that's why Jesus has come. And so they are there. So he has the backing of a lot of people, and, and he has done so many incredible, miraculous works that obviously he was sent from God. And so now the time must be here. And Jesus is marching, you know, uh, ahead of everyone towards Jerusalem. So the time has to be now, right? In, in fact, Jesus said that the time has been fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. And so, and, and shortly after this, we're going to see Jesus ride in Jerusalem you know, victoriously on a donkey, as, as it was predicted in prophecy. And so there's this, there's this anticipation that there were going to be, you know, there's going to be this free Israel again. That the Roman shackles will be cast off and Jesus will be king. And then his followers would be the ruling council. And everyone then, understanding what this means, knows that Roman, the Romans are not going to go quietly into the night. They know that Rome is just not going to say, okay, never mind, we're going to go home. They expect, they anticipate, there's going to be a big conflict. They understand that there's going to be a big fight. They realize that there will be bloodshed. So that's why they're afraid. Right? The time for talk is now over. The time, it's the time for action is, in, is what they're thinking in their minds because they're expecting Jesus to now begin leading this revolt, this uprising against against Rome, and for, for Israel to take its rightful place in history again. But it's at the height of this emotional march towards Jerusalem, and at the height of, of these, this anticipation, that Jesus begins to tell them that this is going to be a lot different than you expect for it to be. This is not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. It says, and taking the twelve again, he said, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, Jesus' messianic title he takes from Isaiah, 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. That's the complete opposite of what they think is going to happen. Jesus once again takes his disciples aside and clearly explains to them the truth right, about the plan. That is different than what they expect. He is not going to Jerusalem to lead a revolt. He is not going to ascend to David's earthly throne. He is not going to get rid of his Roman occupiers. Instead, he is going to be betrayed by his own countrymen, and and he will be killed by the Romans himself. The Romans that they want out are the ones that are going to kill Jesus. This is not going to be this military victory. He will die at the hands of their oppressors. But then afterwards, he will be resurrected. Now, understand, this is the third time that Jesus tells them this. This is the third time that Jesus explains this to them. And each time Jesus talks about it, I don't know if you realize, but he he, he explains it with greater and greater detail. Now, I mean, he really is very detailed. Look at the text. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. Very clearly, someone's going to betray him to his Jewish enemies, the Pharisees. He's going to be handed over to them. And they will condemn him to death. He's saying, they're going to try me, they will convict me, and they will sentence me. And then they will then deliver him over to to the Gentiles, which is a historical reality, by the way. Because they can pronounce judgment on him, but they can't execute him. The Romans have to do it. And then it says, they will mock him spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus explains to them in great, colorful details, crystal clear details, what's about to happen. Right? He, in essence, is saying what you think is about to happen. That ain't going to happen. But notice how his disciples still respond. Verse 35, And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit at at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now why are they asking a question like this? Jesus just said that he's going to be tortured and killed. Why would they be asking to be seated on his right and his left? Because either they don't understand what he's saying or they don't believe what he's saying. The text doesn't tell us exactly which one, but it's one or the other, right? Either they don't get it or they don't believe it. Either way, their hearts are still hard and remain partially spiritually blind. Jesus said so clearly, clearly is day, I'm going to be arrested, tried, convicted, and murdered. And they're like, okay, that's cool, Jesus. Um, you know when you, you become king, um, can, can we be seated at your right and your left hand? Because you know, I think we deserve as much. I think, you know, we should be counted as your closest advisors. I mean, we know you so well. We just want to be your VIPs. Because that's what it means then to sit at somebody's right hand and left hand, by the way. Right? The person who's seated at the right hand of the king was the top advisor, the, the most important person in the kingdom, except for the king. Right? And then one on the left and was right behind him in rank. You see, they're trying still to decide who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom because they think greatness in the kingdom of God is still about position and privilege and honor and power. 
And so all this talk about Jesus' death and all this talk about greatness in the kingdom being about service goes right over the head. Either they don't understand or they don't believe it. And I think this is an important truth for us to grapple with. Because think about it. These are men who have been with Jesus for three years now. They're nearing the end of this ministry. They have listened to him preach over and over and over and over again. They have watched him perform incredible, mind-blowing miracles. They themselves have done miracles by the power of Christ. Right? And, and, and they've heard him now for the third time talk about very clearly his death and resurrection, and still they're so thick-headed they don't get it. Either they don't understand or they just simply don't believe it. It's no wonder that when you talk to people about the gospel, they don't always get it. It's no wonder that so many people around us either don't understand the gospel or simply just don't believe it. No matter how many times you explain it, no matter how many times you tell them about it, no matter how many times you answer all their questions, no matter how many times you, you show them from the scriptures and from logic and reason right, that they're wrong and in error. An atheist will still say he's an atheist, even though the Bible says there's no such thing as an atheist. I mean, if the disciples didn't get it, right? And Jesus himself was the one who was doing the explaining. See, the problem is that they're still very blind. Now, they certainly have enough sight to see well enough to follow Jesus, because they've been granted that much. But they're definitely not seeing things clearly. These men, like the blind man that Jesus healed partially at first... Just cannot fully see. Right? This is this is the spiritual metaphor for that. Jesus has opened their eyes, but they not have not had the ability to fully see yet, which then reminds us of the of an important theme that we have seen throughout not just this section, but the entire Gospel of Mark. And that is people cannot see Christ until Christ opens their eyes. People's hearts will not receive the gospel until their hearts have been changed. People will not believe until God the Holy Spirit empowers them to do so. The gospel is clear, but people cannot and will not believe it until God does something to open their, their spiritual eyes. The truth about Christ and his mission is right, right here. You've got the authority himself declaring what's going to happen, and they cannot, for the life of them, see it. They still think after all that Jesus is going to be king, and so they're asking about positions of power and prominence in this new kingdom. One on the right and one on the left, and Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Which I think is a really big understatement. You think that you understand, but you don't understand. Right? You think you've got this all figured out, but you do not have a clue. You don't know what you're asking for. We as parents... I've probably said those words multiple times to our kids. And then he asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Now, some, there's some, for some, this question that he asks creates some confusion because they try to read too much into what he's saying, but it's not really confusing. It's very, very simple if you understand the symbols. The cup that Jesus speaks of is the cup of suffering. In the Old Testament, frequently the cup was symbolized with trouble and suffering and judgment. Right? And Jesus is saying that things are about to get really, really hard for me. Do you think that you can endure the trouble and suffering that is about to come? And then he talks about baptism. 
but but he's not talking about water baptism that we saw in the beginning of Mark. That's not what he's referring to. Now, he's certainly talking about being immersed and being being pushed in over your head, but he's not talking about water. He's talking about difficulty. He's talking about strife. He's talking about being overwhelmed by and covered up by our troubles and our difficulties, almost like drowning in your troubles. The expositor's commentary calls it, calls it the deluge of judgment and purification. Have you in your life ever been so overwhelmed by the difficulties and the troubles in your life that you feel like you're drowning? You know what that's like? You ever feel like there's so much going on that you can't control, that you can hardly breathe? You're suffocating? That's the idea that he's communicating, by the way. The idea that Jesus is communicating is, is there will be so many trials and so many difficulties ahead of you that, that one could literally be completely immersed and covered up by them. Jesus is asking, can you handle all the difficulty and the hardship that is to come? And further demonstrating their ignorance, they said to him, we are able. You ever talk to your kids and you're like, trying to explain to them how difficult something is going to be, how they're not going to like something, how things, something's just not going to be good for them, and they're just like, they can't get it, they can't see it, they can't, and you're just like, you don't know what you're talking about, you know what you're getting yourself into, and they're like, oh yes I do, oh yes I do, this is what I want, this is what I think, this is what Jesus is saying, you don't know, right? You think you're able, but they have no idea what they're talking about, they have no idea. Now, believe me, they, they're willing to fight because that's what they think is going to happen. Right? They're willing to endure physical hardship because they know there's supposed to be a, a, a military rebellion. But they have no clue of the trials and tribulation that Christ is going to face, and they have no idea of the hardship and the trials that they themselves would endure. But, but I want you to notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus agrees that they will likewise suffer. And they will endure great difficulty because both James and John, as the apostles, suffered greatly for the kingdom of God. In fact, James was killed early on. I think he was the, I think he was the first apostle killed. And then John, who was the longest living apostle, he actually suffered horribly in his life. He was, at one point, boiled in oil. They tried to kill him by boiling him in oil. I don't know about you, but like... And then he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And so he says, both suffered greatly for the kingdom, as Jesus said it was going to happen. Right? But then Jesus says, you will suffer, but, but he says, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant. It is for those whom it has been prepared. And this right here is a twofold illusion. It's a, a metaphor. First of which, Christ, you know, when he performs his greatest work on the earth, when he comes in his glory, he will not have prideful disciples on either side of him. He will have lowly criminals on his right and his left. Because when he comes in his glory, it will be on the cross. When Christ wins the battle, it will be hanging from the tree. And on his right and his left will not be famous, prideful apostles, but nameless, faceless, common criminals. Secondly, it also alludes to the truth that Jesus 
What he's about to share is this. Those who will be at his right and left in the kingdom will not be men of great power. Not people of influence. Not people puffed up with pride and and self-importance. They will be men, right, who are humble, sacrificing, serving, and completely dependent on Christ. And we and we see, we will see in a moment right, that, that this is the truth, but, but notice how the rest of the disciples react to this episode. And when they heard it, they began to be indignant of James and John. Now why indignant? Why would they be upset about this? Was it because that they were upset with James and John because they were misunderstanding Christ? No. They were indignant because like James and John... They did not understand what Jesus was saying either. And they wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom just like those two. They had the same understanding that James and John did. They had the same exact desire. They wanted to be the greatest VIPs when Jesus came in the kingdom. They wanted to be seen as important people. They were just upset that James and John had the courage to straight up ask Jesus for it. And they didn't. They were just as blind as the other two. And so they all respond in ignorance and in pride. Jesus talks about his death. They respond in ignorance and pride. Ignorance and pride. And then Jesus once more explains to them what true greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. And Jesus called to them, called them to him, and said to them, "You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them." What Jesus is saying is. You know what greatness in the world looks like. Because you've seen it. You have seen how powerful and influential men live and how they behave and how they treat other people. These men lead through strength. They lead through political muscle. They lead through force. They lead through coercion. They lead through deception. They lead through political will. They are aggressive, they are forceful, they are ambitious, they are prideful, they are vain. This is greatness in the world. And if if you think about greatness in the world around us, that describes what people think greatness is. Greatness is about power. Greatness is about position. Greatness is about prestige. It's about influence. And and this is, is what you keep thinking about when you think about greatness. This is what you keep asking for, he's saying. This is what you're hoping for. You want this worldly kind of power and influence. That's why you're arguing amongst yourselves who's going to be the greatest. You want this kind of greatness, worldly greatness. But Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. That's not the way it's supposed to be for you. Because that's the way of the world, but that's not the way of the kingdom. But instead, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you would, must be the slave of all. Your understanding of greatness is backwards. Greatness in the kingdom is not about power. It's not about political muscle. It's not about popularity. It's not about prestige. It's about humility. It's about sacrifice. It isn't about being in a power of position. It's about being in a a position of service. And the word service that Jesus uses here is the same one we use for deacon, but it literally means to wait on tables. 
which was the opposite of worldly greatness in, in first century um, Judaism. By the way, <laughs> waiting on tables meant you weren't great. You were the opposite of great. And he says that a person must not only be a servant, but also the slave of all. That those who are great in the kingdom, those who are first, will submit themselves in service to all people, including the least important ones. They'll put everybody before them. See, this is the opposite of pride. It is the exact opposite of power. It's the opposite of political strength. It is the opposite of privilege. The opposite of prestige. This is the upside-down nature of the kingdom of heaven, by the way. The first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the radically different nature of the kingdom of God, which you can only live that way by being radically transformed. This radical nature is what we see reflected in the Sermon on the Mount. I just want to share with you, just here now, this, this understanding. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are, hear this, persecuted. Blessed, happy, favorable, in enviable position. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Rejoice? Yes, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a radically different kind of world. It's a radically different nature of the kingdom of heaven. It is unlike the world that we live in. Following Jesus and being great in the kingdom is about a willingness... To adopt this radical change to put everyone else first in serving them. Putting your neighbor first. Putting your spouse first. Putting your enemies first. Putting your children first. Putting your neighbor's children first. Serving them, and even when it comes at great cost. That's why Jesus said before, if you remember, this entire section is all related. He said, what? If you're going to follow me, what do you need to do? Deny yourself. Pick up your cross, the instrument of suffering and death, and follow me. Following Jesus and true kingdom greatness involves self-sacrifice and oftentimes great personal suffering. And before his disciples could protest about this, before they can say, well, wait a minute, that's just not how I like it. Jesus said, even me. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus isn't high, sitting up in a high position of authority, looking down on us saying, okay, you do this, you do that. No. Jesus himself leads the way. Just like on the way to Jerusalem, he leads the way. Jesus is leading the way. He does exactly what he calls us to do. He's the king of all kings. 
And he sets aside his glory and his position of privilege. And he condescends to become like one of us and becomes the greatest servant of all and serves all of mankind. And he sets the example for all of us who believe in him to follow. Jesus doesn't talk the talk, he walks the walk. And he expects those who believe in him, those who trust in him, those who are called by his name to follow him. And what you need to see in this last verse is two things. Jesus' mission to give his life for the ransom of many. That's why he came. Jesus came to save sinners. That's the mission. That's the first part. The second part is our part in the mission. Our part in the mission is to get busy following Jesus by humbly serving other people. Not just the ones we like. Not just the ones that are convenient. But the ones that are even hard. We're to serve everyone else. Even the ones that we're upset with. Even the ones that we're frustrated by. Even the ones that we love deeply but are under our skin. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's to humble ourselves in service. This is the answer to our question, by the way. Right? So it means to follow Jesus. Let's look at the implications of this. And these will go pretty fast. First of all, following Jesus is about letting go of some important things. It's about letting go of our delusions of grandeur. So you let it go. The fact is we live in a self-centered society. Self-indulged, self-focused. And it's made worse by technology and social media because all the attention is on us. So the truth is we need to get over ourselves. It's harder than you think. We need to come face to face with the fact that following Christ isn't about positions or titles or prestige or popularity. It's about people liking us. It's about serving. It's about humility. It's about sacrifice. We need to let go of whatever delusions of grandeur we might be holding on to. We need to let go of the need to be popular. And we also need to let go of self-importance. We need to stop seeing ourselves as the most important person in the crowd, the most important person in the room. We need to stop seeing ourselves as more important than others, period. This was the message of Christ. That's why Jesus washed his disciples' feet. If you remember the lowest possible act of service, and then he does it, and then what does he do? He says, now this is the example that you're to follow. We need to let go of self-importance. We also need to let go of worldly greatness. Right? Tired of hearing people say, you know, I just need to be successful or I just need a platform. We need to stop seeing right, the world this way. Worldly greatness is about power. It is about popularity. It is about pride. And some people believe that if you have those things, then suddenly your voice will be magnified to be able to preach the gospel. In fact, some of the biggest news in, in Christianity right now is about prominent entertainers and athletes who claim now to be Christians, like Kanye West or Justin Bieber and so on. If they're believers, then praise the Lord for that. Right? But there are people that are so excited saying, just think of who all they can reach for the gospel. Just think of all the people they can bring to the Lord. Just think of the influence they all have for the kingdom. Hear me. They can't reach anybody for the gospel. 
They can't lead anybody to the Lord. Only God can do that. Working through people, but it's still the work of God. They can't do it. That's the point. And just because they're powerful in the world doesn't mean they're going to be powerful in the kingdom. Their power in the kingdom will be whatever power God grants to them. In fact, their worldly power potentially could get in the way. And the thing that we need to keep in mind is the fact that there are big names in Christianity. There have been, like the Apostle Paul, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Vody Bauckham, Tom Askell. But every single one of these men are men who are humbly submitted to serving they're, humbling, humble, they're humbly serving God and others. They're not seeking worldly power. They're not seeking worldly fame. And all of these men and their work, I want you to hear me, would be meaningless anyway if it wasn't for the humble service of countless, nameless, faceless Christians throughout history that have assisted them and been there for them and raised them up. That's the truth. We've all heard of Billy Graham. You know the preacher that shared the gospel with him that changed his heart? No, you don't. Do you know the person who discipled Billy Graham? I don't. How about the one for Charles Spurgeon? What about Paul Washer? What about, what about Richard Barcelos? These are all people that have had other people that trained them up and, and sent them out. We don't know who they are. The kingdom of heaven is made up of countless humble servants who were great in the kingdom of God, but not great according to the world. So hear me, you don't need a platform of achievement to speak from. You just need to speak the gospel. You don't need to achieve some kind of a success for people to listen to you. You just need to preach the gospel. You don't need to do what the world does, you need to do what Christ said to do, which is get busy serving. We need to let go of worldly greatness, and we need to let go of our need to be recognized for our efforts. This is a hard one, by the way. I can testify that. We need to let go of our need to be recognized for our efforts. There's still something in all of us, even the most humble of us, that want to say, but I had something to do with that. We also need to let go of our need to be appreciated. That one's hurt. That one stings a little bit. Hear me. I, now, I want you to understand, encouragement is important. Okay. And we as brothers and sisters in Christ need to encourage each other, whatever we can. I, as a pastor of the church, still need to be encouraged from time to time, because sometimes it's, it can be discouraging. But we need to get over the need to be recognized for what we're doing, and we need to get over the need for others to appreciate and praise us all the time. We're not going to... We're not doing this for that. It's not about us. That's why Jesus says we are his, we're to be slaves. Why? Slaves do their job because it's their job. Right? Slaves don't do their job because someone says, thank you. No, they do their job because it's their job. It's their duty. And it should be the same with us. In fact, even Jesus says that in Luke chapter 17. He says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. We don't 
do what we do to be recognized or appreciated. We do what we do to, because we're following the king. And so we're following Jesus. So it's about letting go of some things. But it's also about accepting some things. Like self-denial. You just need to accept it. That's just part of that. We're called to deny ourselves and put Christ's mission first. Jesus said, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself. He comes first. He also said, we also need to accept suffering and difficulty. This is the antithesis, by the way, of the prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and happy and your life will be perfect. That is not what Jesus promises at all. Anywhere, in any stretch of the imagination, suffering and difficulty is part of the game. Following Jesus is, not, is going to be easy. At times it will be, be hard. It will come at great cost. Again, that's why he says, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow him. Following Jesus will be hard at times and will come at great cost to us. We need to accept it and follow him anyway. We also need to accept that following Jesus is about service and not being served. When we come to church services, when we complain about somebody not talking to us or somebody not you know, singing on key or maybe the preacher said something that really offended me or maybe it was just too cold and not warm enough or maybe, you know, somebody just stinks, right? You come in here expecting to be served, then you have the wrong attitude. We need to come with a heart of service. If you're a Christ follower, you're expected to serve in some capacity, by the way. Now, not to say that everybody has to be preachers, not everybody has to be deacons, not everybody has to teach classes, but there are myriad ways to serve your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's about service. It's also about humility. It's not about positions of pride or even power. Brother Hugh was talking about that in our Bible study, that sometimes we get tangled up, you know, because, you know, traditionally the church is very clear about, you know, different leadership positions, especially when it comes down to, to men and women. And there's this idea that, that just because a church says, you know, a woman can't be a pastor, somehow that, that women are not allowed in ministry, that there's no service for them. There's service for everyone. And it's not even about titles or positions. It's about doing what Christ said to do, which is to go and serve where he leads. It's humility. And besides, if a person has a title in a church and they're not humble, then they don't deserve that title in the church. Following Christ is also, most importantly, about the glory of God. Following Christ is certainly for our good, but it's ultimately about God's glory. As old things are, you exist for the glory of God. You were born for the glory of God. Those who get judged and go to hell will do so for the glory of God. Those who receive grace and mercy is all for the glory of God. You living your life is for the glory of God. Because let me just, let's just be really, really clear. Your glory is too small a thing to live for, no matter how rich you might be and no matter how popular you might be. Your glory is too small a thing to live for. That's why greatness in the kingdom is about service and humility. Because when you're humbly serving, you are then in the right posture to give glory to the one who deserves it, and that is God. Because it's about him and not about you or me. And so following Jesus is about going where Jesus goes, even if it means suffering and death. And where Jesus leads, even if it means that we don't 
we don't go where we want to do and do the things we want to do. And where Jesus commands, because he has the right to command us, he is the king, he has authority to tell us what to do and how to live. And we're to follow Jesus and go where he goes, regardless of the cost. Jesus says, go, and we ought to go. Even if it means difficulty, even if it means our lives. Now with that, with all of that, if you're not a believer, then you might be thinking, why in the world would I ever follow Jesus? Because that's stupid. right? Self-sacrificing? Suffering, humility, serving others, putting everyone else before me, that's just plain stupid. And you're right. According to the world, that, that is stupid. Right? It doesn't make any sense at all unless you understand the last verse of what, what Jesus said here. For even the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The important word to think about here is the word ransom. What is a ransom? A ransom is a price that is paid in order to set someone free from slavery or from prison. You see, the truth is that you follow Christ might seem like slavery, but it's actually really freedom. Because those who, those who don't follow Christ, they're the ones who are really imprisoned. They're the ones who are, are truly enslaved. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, because everybody follows something, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil himself, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Everybody follows someone. Everybody follows something. Everyone is enslaved to something. So it's not a matter of being enslaved. It's what you're enslaved to. And those who do not have Christ are enslaved to the world. They're enslaved to the devil and even their own sinful desires. Now you might say, what's the big deal? I get to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Well, notice the result of that enslavement for those who are not in Christ. They are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There's the bad news. It's those who are in their sin that live in a state of slavery that leads to the awful and terrible wrath of God. And that wrath hangs over their head all the days of their lives. God's wrath abides on them for those who are not in Christ. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. The wages of your sin is the wages of your sin is eternal punishment for the rebellion that you have against the holy and righteous God. Those who are in their sin will be punished eternally and suffer consequences in this life, but eternally. They may even think that they're free in this life, but that just simply lulls them to sleep for the, for the wrath that awaits them. The wrath of God abides on them, and there's nothing they can do to escape it, by the way. They can't be good enough. They can't be smart enough. They can't love enough. They can't care enough. That, then, is why Christ came, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came into the world to pay a price you couldn't pay. He came to, to drink down the full cup of God's wrath on your behalf. 
He didn't come to the earth so that he could be the king of the nation of Israel and, and be waited on like some high and lifted up monarch. He came to serve. He came to die. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live. And he fulfilled the law you couldn't fulfill. And he willingly went to the cross on your behalf. And your sins were accredited to him. And his righteousness are credited to you. And he died on the cross for you. Never lose sight of that truth. He died for you, individually, you. And he was buried and three days later rose again, proving that he is what he claimed to be, God in the flesh, and that he can do what he promised to do, which is to save you from your sins. And all you have to do is what? Repent and believe the gospel. That's the call. Repent and believe the gospel. And then follow Jesus wherever he leads you. And so my urgence, my urge to you is this. If you don't know Christ, then repent and believe the gospel and trust in him alone for your salvation. And if you believe, then take whatever excuses you have, take whatever is in the way, set it aside, humble yourself, follow him. Humble yourself and get busy serving and loving everyone else. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.